0: U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome to this bonus episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and the Exo Steven is here with me as well. Hi, Steve. Hey, everyone. So, it is September 11th today, so I thought it fitting to go over the attacks in 2001 on the World Trade Center in New York City. And there is a naval
1: portion of this that will come up, which is the connection to the U.S. Navy history. Oh, we won't be going over the, the Pentagon or attempted White House attack? Oh, yeah. We'll be going over all of that. Okay. You just mentioned world trade. The Navy stuff will come at the end. I see. So, let's uh, let's just get underway. Yeah, this one's going to be a little more somber, folks. So, this attack was is
0: commonly known as 9-11. It is a coordinated attack of four suicide terror attacks carried out by the Al-Qaeda network against the U.S. So on the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, 19 terrorists hijacked four commercial airlines mid-flight traveling from the northeastern U.S. to California. The attackers were organized into three groups of five and one group of four. And each group, including one designated flight trained hijacker who took control of the aircraft, meaning these guys knew how to fly. Now, their goal was to crash planes into prominent American buildings, inflicting as much casualties and structural damage as they can. They successfully crashed the first two planes into the North and South Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City and the third plane into the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. The fourth one was intended to hit a government building in Washington, D.C., but instead was crashed in a field outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania because of a passenger revolt. These brave, brave people... That attack. And the first plane to hit was American Airlines Flight 11. This was into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at
1: 0846. And if memory serves, at that point, people thought it may have just been a freak accident. Yes. 17 minutes later, at
0: 0903, the South Tower was hit by United Airlines Flight 175. And both of the 110 story towers collapsed within an hour and 42 minutes, which also took out a number of buildings around them, including seven World Trade Center. The third flight, American Airlines Flight 77, crashed into the west side of the Pentagon at 0937, which caused a partial collapse of the building and the fourth flight, which was United Airlines Flight 93, was flown in the direction of Washington, D.C. The plane's passengers were alerted about the previous attacks and attempted to regain control of the aircraft to prevent it from crashing into its intended target. A fight broke out in the aircraft and the hijackers crashed the plane in a field in Stony Creek Township, Pennsylvania at 10.03. Now, they don't exactly know what the target for that flight was, but they think it was either the U.S. Capitol building or the White House. Uh, So, Al-Qaeda. Their origins could be traced to 1979, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden, he travels to the Central Asian country to volunteer, viewing the war as a holy cause to help fellow Muslims. Defeat communist invaders. He then organizes fellow Arab Mulajin to resist the Soviets until the Soviets exit Afghanistan in eighty nine. Now the CIA they funnel several billion dollars worth of weapons to the Afghan Mulajin resistance. A portion of these go to the Arab Arab volunteers. Now, no direct U.S. aid to bin Laden himself has ever been established. In 66, he issues his first fatwa, calling for American soldiers to leave Saudi Arabia. In his second fatwa, in 98, he outlines his objections to American foreign policy with respect to Israel as well as the continued presence of American troops in Saudi Arabia after the Gulf War. Bin Laden, he used Islamic texts to cause Muslims to attack Americans until the stated grievances were reversed. A little bit more about the man himself. He orchestrated the attacks. He initially denied involvement, but later recanted these statements. Al Jazeera broadcast a statement by him on September 16, 2001, saying, quote, I stress that I have not carried out this act, which appears to have been carried out by individuals with their own motivation. In November, U.S. forces recover a videotape from a house that was destroyed in Jalabad, Afghanistan. In the video, Bin Laden is seen talking to Khaled al and admits foreknowledge of the attacks. And on December 27th, in a second video, he says, It has become clear that the West in general, and America in particular, have an unspeakable hatred for Islam. It is the hatred of crusaders. Terrorism against America deserves to be praised because it was a response to injustice, aimed at forcing America to stop its support for Israel, which kills our people. We say that the end of the United States is imminent, whether bin Laden or his followers are alive or dead, for the awakening of the Muslim Ummah has occurred. It is important to hit the economy of the United States, which is the base of its military power. If the economy is hit, they will become reoccupied.
1: But, you know, he stops short of actually admitting responsibility for the attacks. He initially denied involvement to keep heat off of him I'm sure he was fairly high on the suspect list off the bat mm-hmm. and then I'm sure it reached his ears cause I do recall news outlets more or less around the, that time you were saying that initial video was found like evidence shows you know Osama Bin Laden may have been the you know orchestrator of the attacks so just
0: before the election in 2004 for the new president bin Laden used a tape statement to publicly acknowledge Al Qaeda's involvement in the attacks. He admitted his direct link to the attacks and said they were carried out because we are free and we want to regain freedom for our nation. As you undermine our security, we undermine yours. He did say he personally directed his followers to attack the world trade center and the Pentagon. And then another video was obtained by Al Jazeera in September of 2006, which shows bin Laden with one of the attack's chief planners, Ramzi bin al-Shaba, as well as two of the hijackers, Hamza al-Ghamdi and Wali al-Shiri, as they made preparations for the attacks. That's really damning. Just a, just a little bit. Now, the U.S. never formally... Indicted bin Laden for the attacks, but he was on the FBI's most wanted list for the bombings of the U.S. embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tarnesia, and Nairobi, Kenya. And we hunted him for a long time 10 years. And then President Barack Obama announced that bin Laden was killed by SEAL Team 6 in his compound in. Abbottabad, Pakistan, on May 1st, 2011. So there's a guy named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And in 2002, a journalist for Al Jazeera, Yorzi Funda, he reports that Mohammed admitted his involvement in the attacks along with Ramzi bin Al Shabi. The 2004 9-11 commission report determined that the animosity towards the u.s that he felt was the reason for this and that he was the principal architect of the 9-11 attacks he was also an advisor and financier of the 1993 world trade center bombing and of the man ramsey yusuf who was the lead Bomber in that attack. He was arrested March 1st, 2003, in Pakistan by Pakistani security officials working with the CIA. And he was held at a number of CIA black sites and at Guantanamo Bay. Maybe he was in the period we can only hope he was in that pyramid. And he was interrogated and tortured with methods including waterboarding. Now, during hearings at Guantanamo Bay in 2007 he did confess responsibility for the attacks stating that quote he was responsible for the 9/11 operation from a to z and that his statement was not made under duress which i don't know they were torturing the heck out of him so the motives for this attack now Osama bin Laden actually did declare a holy war against the U.S. in 98, calling for the killing of Americans. The other motivations was the U.S. support of Israel, support for the attacks against Muslims in Somalia, support of Philippines against Muslims in the Moro conflict, support for Israel aggression against Muslims in Lebanon, support of Russian atrocities against Muslims in Chetnya, pro-American governments in the Middle East being against Muslim interests, support of Indian oppression against Muslims in Kashmir, the presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia, and the sanctions against Iraq. So, again, as we said, Mohammed, he was the one who thought up these attacks. And he presented it to Osama bin Laden in '96. At this time, Bin Laden and al-Qaeda were in a period of transition because they had to relocate back to Afghanistan from Sudan. The 98 African embassy bombings and Bin Laden's February 98 fatwa marked a turning point of al-Qaeda's terrorist operation because Bin Laden became intent on attacking the United States. So... Late 98, early 99, bin Laden gives the green light to Mohammed to go forward with organizing the plot. Mohammed bin Laden and bin Laden's deputy, Mohammed Atif, they have a series of meetings in 99, and Atif provides operational support including target selections and helping arrange travel for the hijackers. Now, Bin Laden does overrule Mohammed, rejecting some potential targets, such as the U.S. Bank Tower in Los Angeles, because of
1: a lack of time. They wanted to get this done quickly. Yeah, I mean, if it's coming from one central airport, so to speak, everything would need to be reasonably close before the Air Force could muster. Yeah.
0: Now, Bin Laden, he provided leadership and financial support and was involved in selecting the participants. He initially selected Nawaf al hazimi and Khalid al-Mindhur, which were both experienced jihadists who had fought in Bosnia. So these guys arrive in the United States in mid-January 2000, and they take flying lessons in San Diego. But... They did not speak very good English and performed very badly in the flying lessons. And so, eventually, they were placed as secondary hijackers, or the muscle. So, in late 99, a group of men from Hamburg, Germany, arrived in Afghanistan. This included Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shahi, Ziyad Jarrah, and Ramzi bin al Shaba. Bin Laden selected these guys because they were educated, they could speak English, and had experience living in the West. Now, new recruits were routinely screened for special skills, and al-Qaeda leaders discovered that Hanjour already had a commercials
1: pilot license. So he already had the experience and knowledge to handle these jets. Well, and something else... um Your XO got his pilot's license before he got his driver's license. Famously. Learning how to fly a single-engine, prop-driven aircraft, it doesn't directly translate to, you know, flying a, you know, jet airliner. You know, same general principle, but a lot more moving parts. Yeah, a lot more
0: weight, and a lot more thrust, and a lot more... Of a lot of other things. Yeah. Now Muhammad did say that he helped the hijackers blend in by teaching them how to order food in restaurants and dress in Western clothing. So Hanjour arrives in San Diego, December eighth, in two thousand, joining Hazim. They then go to Arizona, where Hanjour took refresher training. Marwan al shahi arrived at the end of May, while Atta arrived in June. And Jarrah arrives on the latter half of June. Bin al Shabi applied several times to get a visa to the U.S., but as a Yemen, he was rejected out of concerns he would overstay his visa. Apparently at this time, Yemen people, they were coming over and not leaving. So he stays in Hamburg and provides coordination between Atta and Mohammed. The three Hamburg cell members all took pilot training in South Florida at Huffman Aviation. And in the spring of 2001, the secondary hijackers begin arriving in the U.S. In July, Atta met with bin al-Shabi in Spain, where they coordinated details of the plot, including the final target selection. He also passes along bin Laden's wish for the attacks to be carried out as soon as possible. Now, some of these hijackers did receive passports from corrupt Saudi officials who were family members, or they used fake passports to gain entry. So, in late 99, Al-Qaeda associate Wilad Bin Atash contacted Mindher, telling him to meet him in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Hazimi Abu Barra Ayami would also be there. The NSA intercepted a telephone call mentioning the meeting, and the agency feared something nefarious might be afoot, but it didn't take any action. Why not? You'd have to ask the NSA. Mm. So the CIA had been alerted by Saudi intelligence that the status of Mindahar and Hazmi, that they were al-Qaeda members, and a CIA team broke into Mindahar's Dubai hotel room and discovers that he had a US visa. Now Alex station which was the Bin Laden issue station did alert intelligence agencies worldwide about finding the US visa but it did not give the information to the
1: FBI. I guess they weren't intelligent enough. And these intelligence agency, like, th- these several instances of intelligence agencies dropping the ball is what gives a lot of the conspiracy theories the ammo they look for, I imagine, right? Yeah. They don't realize that the
0: communication between agencies are not what they are then as they are today. Mm-hmm. And... I'm sure there's still butting
1: heads between the agencies. But there was a lot less communication between the branches. And while the internet did exist back at this time, like like the speeds I have where I'm at were cutting edge back then. Yeah. It took about a half hour to download a picture, if you were
0: lucky. So the Malaysian special branch observes... January 5th, 2000, a meeting of two Al-Qaeda members and informs the CIA that Bindahar, Hazimi, and Khalid were flying to Bangkok. But the CIA drops the ball and notifies no one of this. And it does not ask the State Department to put them on its watch list. Now, they did have an FBI lazy on at Alex Station. And he asked for permission to inform the FBI of the meeting, but was told,
1: quote, this is not a matter for the FBI. What, do you think it was the CIA's problem the FBI had no business getting involved? Yeah. The CIA
0: looked at the FBI as domestic, while the CIA were international. That's probably why. So, by late June, senior counterterrorism official... Richard Clark and the CIA director, George Tenet, were convinced that a major series of attacks was about to come. Although they believed that the attacks would likely occur in Saudi Arabia or Israel. In July, Clark put domestic agencies on full alert, telling them something really spectacular is going to happen here soon. And he asked the FBI and State Department to alert the embassies and police departments and asked the Defense Department to go to Threat Condition Delta. He later writes that somewhere in CIA, there was information that two known al-Qaeda terrorists had come into the United States. Somewhere in the FBI, there was information that strange things had been going on at flight schools in the United States. And they had specific information about individual terrorists from which one could have deduced what was about to happen. But none of that got to him or the White House. On July 13th, Tom Wilshire, who was a CIA agent assigned to the FBI's International Terrorism Division, emailed his bosses at the Counterterrorism Center, the CTC, requesting permission to tell the FBI that Hazimi was in the country and that Mindanhar
1: had a U.S visa. His bosses never responded. It sounds like this is just the perfect storm of a lot of individuals either being complacent because thinking, you know, nothing's really happened in a decade, so we're doing a good job, slash, you know what, that's another department's problem. It's more that latter part, plus
0: we know better than anybody else, Uh, we're in competition with Everybody else? So the less we tell them, the better we look when we crack it wide open. Battle of the Egos. Mm-hmm. Uh, that same day, Margaret Jalipsy, who was an FBI analyst working in the CTC, was told to review material about the Malaysia meeting. She was not told of the participants' presence in the U.S., and the CIA gave her surveillance photos of and Nazimi from the meeting to show to FBI's counterterrorism, but did not tell her their significance. The intel Link database informed her not to share intelligence material on the meeting with criminal investigators. When shown the photos, the FBI were refused more details on their significance, and they were not given Mindenhar's birth day or passport number oh in yeah in late august gelepsy told the ins the state department and the customs service and the fbi to put hazimi and Mindanar on their watch lists but the fbi was prohibited from using criminal agents in searching for the two guys which hindered their efforts uh, also in July, a Phoenix based FBI agent sent a message to the FBI headquarters, the Alex station, and FBI agents in New York, alerting them to the possibility of a coordinated effort by Osama bin Laden to send students to the U.S. to attend civil aviation universities and colleges. The agent, who was named Kenneth Williams, suggested the need to interview all flight school managers and identify all Arab students seeking flight training in July Jordan alerted the U S that Al Qaeda was planning an attack on the U S months later, Jordan notified the U S that the attacks code name was the big wedding and that it involved airplanes. So these guys are getting all this intelligence, but they fail to act on it. August the CIA's presidential daily brief was designated for the president's eyes only And it was entitled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. The memo noted that FBI information indicates patterns of suspicious activity in this country consistent with preparations for hijackings or other types of attacks. Now, later that month, one Minnesota flight school alerted the FBI about Zorakis Musuni, who had asked suspicious questions. The FBI found that he was a radical who had traveled from who had traveled to Pakistan and the INS arrested him for overstaying his French visa. They did request to search his laptop, but the headquarters denied it because they said there's no probable cause. Facepalm. So as you can see, there are a lot of failures in intelligence sharing. And this, if they would have just done their jobs, shared the information, this attack could have been thwarted. Yeah. All right. So back to the attacks. 19 of these guys took the four commercial airlines. All of them were en route to California. Three of them going to LAX and one to SFO. They took off from Logan International in Boston. Newark Liberty International Airport, and Washington Dulles International Airport. Large planes with long coast-to-coast flights were selected for this attack because they would have more fuel. They wanted the biggest boom they could get. So American Airlines Flight 11 was a Boeing 767, which departed Logan at 0759. It had a crew of 11 and 76 passengers, not including the hijackers. This is the one that went into the North Tower. United Airlines Flight 175 was also a Boeing 767. Departed Logan at 0814 with a crew of nine and 51 passengers. This went into the South Tower. Americans Airline Flight 77, which was a Boeing 757. This is the one that left Washington Dulles at 0820. With a crew of 6 and 53 passengers. United Airlines Flight 93 was also a Boeing 757. And this one left Newark. At 0842. Crew of 7 and 33 passengers. And this is the one that went into the field. So in total, 33 crew, 213 passengers.
1: So, alright, this is going to become really, really grim. Well, we were such a a beacon of... (laughs) sunshine and joy so far this episode yeah uh flight 93's cockpit voice
0: recorder revealed crew and passengers tried to seize control of the plane that's how they know what happened there they they recovered the black box yeah they learned about it from phone calls to them that flights 1177 175 had been crashed into buildings that morning once it became evident that the passengers might gain control, the hijackers rolled the plane and crashed it. Some passengers and crew members who called from the aircraft using the cabin airphone service and mobile phones provided details. Several hijackers were aboard each plane. They used mace, tear gas, or pepper spray to overcome the flight attendants, and some people aboard had been stabbed reports indicated that hijackers stabbed and killed pilots, flight attendants and one or more passengers. Uh, according to the commission's final report, the hijackers had purchased multi-function hand tools and assorted leatherman style utility knives with locking blades which
1: at this time were not forbidden to be on planes. they were completely legal to have them. I imagine because it's oh well, it's not a knife it's a multi-tool yeah. Well still, small knives were allowed. Right, yeah.
0: It this completely changed air travel. A flight attendant on flight eleven and a passenger on flight one seventy five and passengers on flight ninety three said that the hijackers had bombs. But one of the one of the passengers said he thought the bombs were probably fake. And of course, there was no traces of explosives found at any of the crash sites. At 0943, the FAA grounded all civilian aircraft within the continental United States, and civilian aircraft already in flight were told to
1: land immediately. You can uh, pretty much see, like, in the matter of 45 minutes to an hour, like, you know, the, the live, how many flights were up in the air, and then the attacks occurred, and it just, the sky goes completely blank in a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. It's crazy.
0: All international civilian aircraft were either turned back or redirected to airports in Canada or Mexico and were banned from landing on United States territory for three days. Uh, Of course, these attacks created widespread confusion among news organizations and air traffic controllers. One of the most prevalent contradictory reports said that a car bomb had been detonated at the U.S. State Department's headquarters in Washington, D.C., and another jet was suspected of being hijacked. But these were proven false. So, these attacks are the deadliest terrorist attacks in world history. It caused the deaths of 2,996 people. This include the hijackers. And this
1: attack also injured more than 6,000 other people. And that's an immediate injuries. Never mind the long-standing health conditions that a lot of people around ground zero you know are still feeling or beginning to feel from all that crap that was kicked up in the air from the towers collapsing yeah
0: Uh, most of the deaths were civilian it does include 343 firefighters 72 law enforcement officers 55 military personnel and the 19 terrorists uh more than 90 countries lost people in the attack for example 67 Britons died so uh a little bit of the damage the 110 floor to towers of course were completely leveled numerous other buildings at that site were destroyed or badly damaged including world trade center buildings three through seven the saint nicholas greek orthodox church the marriott hotel uh the u.s customs house World Trade Center, Five World Trade Center, and both pedestrian bridges connecting the buildings were severely damaged. The German bank building on 130 Liberty Street was partially damaged and demolished in 2007. The two buildings of the World Financial Center were also damaged, and the fires were
1: finally extinguished 100 days after the attacks. They were burning for that long? Yes. Yes. That is comparable to Chernobyl, yeah, and just how long it took to get that somewhat under control uh there was a path train system under the World Trade Center,
0: and it was completely demolished when the towers collapsed, and the tunnels leading to the exchange place stationed in Jersey City and New Jersey were flooded with water
1: yeah so New York City was just crippled for not not necessarily crippled but heavily heavily damaged not just the towers yes a large portion of new york city was heavily damaged the pentagon was also
0: damaged by the impact of airlines flight 77 and one section of the building did collapse it hit the pentagon on the first floor so it did take down light poles and its engine actually had a power generator. Before colliding, it went 310 feet into the Pentagon. So it, the Pentagon has five rings. It went through three of them. NYFD deployed 200 units, which was half of all their firefighters to the World Trade Center. The numerous off-duty firefighters and emergency medical technicians also through on their gear and went. NYPD sent emergency service units and other police personnel and deployed its aviation unit. Once on the scene, the three departments, the fire police and uh, the aviation police, did not coordinate their efforts and they performed redundant searches for civilians. They were going They they didn't have any coordination at all. So as the conditions deteriorated, the aviation unit relayed information to police commanders who issued orders for its personnel to evacuate the towers. Most police officers were able to safely evacuate before the buildings collapsed. Unfortunately, that warning was not given to the fire department. After the first tower collapsed, the fire department issued orders to evacuate the second one. I'm not going to go into the aftermath because we're all living in the aftermath now, but suffice to say, air travel has changed, domestic relations changed, there was a huge uptick of Muslim-American hate crimes, and of course the entire 20-year-long war, so... That is a quick rundown of a lot of what happened that day. So, what about you? I know you were alive during this time, as some of our listeners probably weren't.
1: You want to share your story? Uh, well, let's see. Your XO was a wee little lottie of about seven years old. And it was a Tuesday like any other, going into school. and I'm not sure. we were past A, B, C's and one, two, threes. Maybe I was learning how to add, you know multiply and divide that day. I'm not entirely sure. I do remember at one point, they pretty much had the teacher like stopped the lesson, turned on the TV because something was happening. Don't exactly recall what it was that she said. I just remember all of us wondering why this was so important because to us we just thought a building was on fire. Mhm. I mean all we saw was you know a, a lot of smoke, you know two really big buildings and then folks started jumping and they turned off the TV. And I think school was called at a half day that day.
0: Yeah, that's understandable. mm mm-hmm. Mhm.
1: And, I mean, nobody really knew what was going on. Uh, Like, the kids especially, but, like, the adults doubly so. And, um, you know, months went on, and, you know, watching morning news shows, like, there was a daily, like, terrorist threat level orange, or terrorist threat level yellow, or whatever. Like, it was just part of the daily morning news. Like, what the, both national and then, like, local threat level was and i mean at the time i was going to a religious school so you know morning prayer was a thing Mm -hmm. and uh yeah there, there was a lot of uh you know prayers about finding who was responsible for the attack and bringing them to justice being brought up in those prayers as I got older, you know, I actually was able to kind of fathom what it was that occurred that day. And I keep trying to bring myself to actually watch the footage of what occurred. You know, aside from the three, four minutes that I saw on the TV that day. But it's like, I, I know the facts. And actually watching the footage won't change anything. But, um, no. yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, like, Hunter S. Thompson's essay that came out shortly after 9-11, I think, did a very good job of, you know, hitting the main notes of what it was that happened across the board. Like, as far as your average American citizen goes. Um, Like, just some highlights from it. You know, make no mistake about it. We are at war now with somebody. And we will stay at war with that mysterious enemy for the rest of our lives. You know. It'll be a religious war, a sort of Christian jihad, fueled by religious hatred, led by merciless fanatics on both sides. It'll be a guerrilla warfare on a global scale, with no front lines and no identifiable enemy. Um. Oh, we identified them. <laughs> well, y- yes. Th- this was in the days after September 11th. But it's like, that. that is accurate. Like, the war on terror doesn't have a front. It's you know a frontless war that you know has occurred across five continents yeah and then you know he goes on to say uh you know uh where is it um generals and military scholars will tell you that eight or ten years is actually not such a long span of time in the human history which is no doubt true But history also tells us that 10 years of martial law and a wartime economy are going to feel like a lifetime to people who were in their 20s today. And the poor bastards of what will forever be known as Generation Z are doomed to be the first generation of Americans who will grow up with a lower standard of living than their parents enjoyed. That is extremely heavy news and will take a while for that to sink in. The 22 babies born in New York City while the World Trade Center burned will never know what they missed. The last half of the 20th century will seem like a wild party for rich kids compared to what's going on now. The party's over, folks. Like, in in my day job, I deal with people all the time who I need to collect their information in order to do what my job entails. You need to verify their identity. I- exactly, exactly. To not only to follow federal regulations. And they're like, well, I don't want Uncle Sam doing no one that's like my dude. <laughs> I'm in my late 20s. The Patriot Act has been, in effect, effectively my entire life. Like, if you exist in the United States, (laughs) they got it already. Like, you can forget about privacy. Hell, a running joke in my generation is like, you know, instead of, hey Siri, it's like, hey NSA agent, find me a good pancake recipe. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a a completely, I, I, I know life was different before this. I was just too young to really understand how. So a post-9-11 world's really all I've known. I've known a bit more freedom than you've known. Yes. <laughs> so, I've, <laughs> so I've heard. A, a uh, rumor has that there was a time where I could have gone to Mexico or Canada without a passport. You still can, actually. And at least Mexico way. But you're not going very far. <laughs> well, anyways, yes, um... The, f- the first-hand accounts of Civilian Child XO are not exactly uh, in-depth. Uh, I just have a... I feel like a pretty decent understanding of what it was I missed out on. And by m- me, I mean, you know, a lot of people in my age group. Like, we were too young to appreciate what it was like beforehand. But old enough to hear about what it was and, like... I mean, you can bleep this out. mother. You stole that from us. Not you, but, like, the events of 9-11. Oh, no, I stole it from you, personally. <laughs> God damn it, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, as for
0: me, uh, I'm going to do this two ways. First, I'm going to take it from the official
1: record, and then for my personal recollections. Um, j- just just to avoid, and I- I'm sure you've thought about this, there's nothing that from the official record that or from your personal recollections, that would have uh, intelligence agencies on your ass, right? Nothing that...
0: No, this is declassified. It is freely and publicly available to see. This is the command history for calendar year 2001 for the USS George Washington, CVN 73. (laughs) This is pretty much a summary of everything we did
1: that year. I'm also going to have a little bit of 2002 as well. Okay, so, I just wanted to check, Is the last thing I need to hear about is a week from now, you know, <laughs> someone coming knocking on my door. Yes, I see you're an associate with uh, one Captain Dale. Yeah, I know the guy, why? Come with us. No, there are still redactions in this document.
0: I mean, I remember some of the redactor redacting stuff, but uh, if it's redacted, it will not be coming out. All right, so... On September 10th, just six weeks after returning from the shipyard, GW departed Pier 11 to conduct independent steaming operations off the coast of Virginia. The next day, George Washington would transition from post-shipyard combat systems testing to real-world presence and defense operations. The next day was September 11th. Terrorists flew two hijacked jetliners in World Trade Center towers and another jetliner into the Pentagon. Within three hours after the attacks, George Washington embarked Commander's 2nd Fleet and became the command ship for the East Coast Senior Commander in Defense of the United States. Only an hour later, GW's Air Department transitioned from a training and maintenance mode to combat flight operations, as they made a ready deck and began recovering fully armed aircraft from CVW-17 and Kennedy's air wing CVW-7, forming an effective and successful composite air wing. While rapidly conducting day and night carrier qualifications, GW simultaneously assumed the critical command and control link picture for Operation Noble Eagle, providing its C-4I suite was operating flawlessly. Proving its C-4I suite was operating flawlessly. Combat Systems Department provided connectivity and firepower to the commander of the Northeast Air Defense Region for defense of the continental United States the department provided critical STU-3 and secure UHF communications, 30 NIPR and SIPR workstations, and immediate video teleconference capability to two embarked battle staffs. As a sign of solidarity with the people of New York, George Washington steamed north to arrive just three miles off Coney Island Beach at dawn on September 12th, providing a demonstration of military presence and peace of mind. To an unnerved city and country. George Washington's aircraft flew armed combat air patrols launching 234 sorties in support of Operation Noble Eagle until relieved on 17 September in order to continue the inter-deployment training. As a result of this impressive around-the-clock flight operations and world-class C-4I conductivity, the 2nd Fleet Commander lauded GW's performance as unrivaled for any ship. An unheard of accomplishment for a carrier only six weeks out of the yard. In addition, George Washington executed this intensive combat
1: operation accident and incident free. So the ship was that new when the 9 11 attack occurred? Not new. Not new? Out of a dock period. Prefitting. Oh, okay. On October
0: 1st, GW again got underway to conduct fleet carrier qualifications until October 12th. During this at-sea period, four reserve corpsmen from New York City were on board for their two-week ADT. That is, Navy Reserves, two weeks at-sea requirement every year. Mm. Each had participated in heroic rescue efforts at the World Trade Center, following the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers. Three were New York City paramedics, and the fourth was a podiatrist. One of the paramedics, HM2, redacted brought with him an American flag, which he had raised at the USS Arizona Memorial, then raised it at Ground Zero to present to George Washington when he reported for duty. A presentation ceremony was conducted on October 11th, exactly one month following the attacks. The flag is currently being kept safe until the time comes that George Washington deploys in combat. Then it will be flown as the ship's battle flag. That's pretty cool. And then I'm going to go to 2002. This was our deployment. All right, so in 2002, a poignant reminder to the men and women of GW of why we are engaged in the war against the terrorism was expressed during a memorial service to honor the victims of September 11th, 2001. The service was held on board GW as the ship remained on station in the Arabian Sea on the year anniversary of the attacks against America. It was fitting also that on September 11, 2002, GW passed the torch to USS Abraham Lincoln, having now coming full circle since standing watch off the coast of New York City on September 12, 2001, then a year later bringing the fight to the terrorists in the Arabian Sea. All right, so that is the official record. My personal remembrances were... Uh, I had just come off a night watch and I was allowed to go to sleep and skip the work day. So I was in my rack. My rack, of course, is right next to the TV for some reason. And I heard the news program going off. And in my mind, I thought it was a movie. So I went to sleep not knowing anything. When I got back, when I got up later that day, Went to the chow line, and on the TVs down there, that's when I learned about it. Chow line runs 24-7, except for one hour every day for cleaning. <laughs> so, and then the what? captain comes over, the 1MC, and explains the situation to us, and that uh, we've been ordered to New York City to establish and maintain no-fly zone. And then, so go about the rest of the day, just doing, getting ready for war. Because we just went from a peacetime operations to wartime operations. And then the next morning, we were in the hangar bay doing mustering. And normally, we wouldn't do that, but they figured that they we needed to do a morning muster so we could go over. What was going on, what we were expected to do, you know, all that stuff. And the hangar bay doors were open, as they typically are, especially during the day. And we're standing there staring at New York City with the column of smoke. So
1: that's uh, my experience. Sorry. No, dude, it's fine. Like No judgment here. Like, it was not a great day for anybody like like we said this was going (laughs) to be a somber one yeah Uh, anyway (laughs) Well, I was going to say and to rub further salt in the wounds like everything we've covered up to this point nobody's around anymore nobody's grandkids are around anymore with what we've usually been covering so far this is in living memory yeah
0: alright well I think that's going to do us uh, thank you guys for joining us. You can uh, write to us at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at USNHistoryPod. And we want to wish you all fair wind at following seas.
1: See you later. See you next time, folks.
0: US Naval History Podcast. Departing.